God's word is filled with stories of families, and it minces no words about the realities of them. Jealousy, affairs, hatred, tension, loneliness. But if we're honest, sometimes it's hard to identify with the families of the Bible. After all, most people have never had an affair that led to a murder like David, been sold into slavery like Joseph, or have been cursed by their grandfather like Noah's grandson Canaan. It's easy to believe that you have nothing in common with the families of the Bible, but that is far from the truth. The truth about every family, in the Bible and in this church, is that they are all broken because of sin. So although the thread of brokenness may run through your family in a different way than it did for Abraham or Moses or David, the fact remains, we are broken. But our hope as believers is not that we are wise or strong enough to unravel the messes that exist within our homes, but that we have an uncommon God that breaks into the context of our homes and can bring beauty from brokenness. Well, good morning and welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park, where we are disciples of Jesus that build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. I'm Pastor Aaron, and I'm glad to be with all of you who are very brave and very faithful to join us on this snowy day. And of course, all of you who are online who are maybe a little less brave, but just as faithful, glad to have you with us today. Hey, since you're with us, uh, would you mind take out your green connection card and let us know that you are here. Uh, just fill out whatever you feel comfortable filling out there. And at the end of the message, I'll come back. We're going to come back to this connection card as we have some next steps uh, that uh, Pastor Jesse is going to be leading us up to as a response to an amazing word uh, in Scripture for us today. Uh, and so, yeah, get those ready. And as you do, you'll notice that this series is February. We're going to be focusing on family. And, uh, you know, we, we do have a real focus on the family here from generations all the way down to our, our gender, like how we have uh, God's way does direct us in that. But uh, no family is perfect. So uh, we do have uh, the series we're talking about that the truth about family, and that's what we'll be focusing on this time. And so we have also in there, on top of your connection card, we have an, an anchor verse for the series, and I want you to pull that out too. You could take that off, and I'm going to put that up on the screen as uh, just a reminder of uh, kind of the anchor for us for this entire series. It says this in Ephesians 3, 20, 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And uh, this passage, of course, we, we decided to, to pick for this series because no matter how uh, broken or how matter how uh, strained, no matter how tense, no matter how uh, uh, hopeless, no matter how lonely you may feel in your family, I want you to know that God is able to do far more than you can possibly think, that he's the one who is in there working great things. And you're going to see that through this entire series. So I encourage you, take this memory verse, take it off uh, and uh, put it in your pocket, your wallet, your purse, tape it to the back of your phone, somewhere that you're going to get to this and remind ourselves that God is at work, even in our families today. Okay, with that, um, I'm going to pray for Pastor Jesse and I'm going to have him up and we're going to 
have his, his message. Let's just pray for him. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that we are part of your family, and that is the only family that ultimately will be made absolutely perfect, but uh, even in the midst of our imperfect lives and families, that you invite uh, us to, to have a relationship, that, that you're the ones who's in the midst of it. So today, and this entire month of February, as we focus on families, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to open our family to yours, that we'd invite you to become the head of our homes, that, Father, we would see your healing and your goodness in the midst of us, and all of us would be encouraged where we are today, but also uh, encouraged by where you can bring us. So we pray for Pastor Jesse today. May you allow your word come alive through his words into our hearts. We pray that in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. And good morning to, to all of you truly brave souls. It is a little slippery out there. As the video and Pastor Aaron mentioned, we're in a new series today uh, called Common Threads, The Truth About Family. So do me a favor and open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to be reading the whole thing. Let's read together. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You know, there's a quote commonly attributed to St. Augustine who said God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. 
Today we look at the common thread of our lives of suffering, something that is maybe the most universal thing in our world. So universal that even Jesus, who was without sin, still suffered. And this common thread ranges between all people in all time, in all places. You cannot go to a place on earth or a time in history where suffering did not exist except for Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Suffering is something you have experienced. It is something I have experienced. And it looks different for everybody though, right? The, the thread of suffering, it comes in different colors and hues and depths. And yet, it strings throughout all of humanity over all space and all time. And today, I want you to think of suffering as kind of a diamond, right? Uh, you hold up a diamond to the light, and it's going to refract differently no matter which way you turn it. And today, we are going to look at the diamond of suffering to see how it refracts in the home of Abram, but more specifically, in the life of Hagar. This is Hagar's story. It was 10 years before this passage takes place that God appeared to a man named Abram, or we know him better as Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Thank you. And he's old in age already and has had quite an experience so far in his life uh, of being called into very difficult places, and Abraham just kind of always has this backup plan, which we see one of them right here in this passage, where he believes God, but he also has kind of like a king up his sleeve that he's ready to use at any time and just kind of use a backup plan uh, to accomplish what he thinks God wants him to do instead of trusting God completely. And so God appears to Abram uh, and says, he brings him outside of the tent and tells him, look up at the sky. And your descendants are going to be like the stars that you see. Now, Abraham, or Abram at the time, was already old in age, and, and so was his wife, Sarai, which literally translates to princess. Her name is princess. She is the princess of promise. They are the covenant couple who God tells them, your descendants are going to be like sand on a seashore, like stars in the sky. All nations will be blessed through your lineage. But 10 years is a long time to wait. And Sarai sits there, 10 years later, still barren, still without a child, and just getting older and older in age. You know, I imagine she would identify with this quote from Jane Wagner who said, I feel like my life is just passing me by like two ships in the night and I have missed both boats. It says in Proverbs 13, 12, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if you can think about maybe the posture of Sarai's heart when we get 10 years out from this promise and she's continuing to progress in age and this hope, this dream of having children is just getting more and more distant from her. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And let me tell you something, Sarai is sick. She's sick of waiting She's sick of hoping. She's sick of believing. God made a promise. He hasn't come through. As a matter of fact, if you look in verse 2, what does she say? The Lord has prevented me. He's prevented me. 
he's, it's his fault. It's God's fault I'm not having children. And in fact, the word prevented in the Hebrew, it has this really rich language of being constricted or confined. It's like God has put me in a jail cell that I can't escape from. He's made this promise, but he's not coming through. And because the heart hates nothing more than a posture of waiting, Sarai attempts to induce the promises of God. You know what I say? She tries to induce the promise of God, right? Speed it along. You ever done that? It's like you know God is working, but you just get sick of waiting, sick of hoping, sick of believing. I know the promise is true. I trust God, but I'm not exactly sure about his methods. I'm not exactly sure about his timing. As a matter of fact, I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago who experienced a tremendous loss, and he said, I believe what God said. I believe it. I believe that all things work together for the good of those who love him. But I just don't see how it could. I don't understand how this could turn for good. We get tired of waiting and hoping and believing. And so Sarai, with all of the human wisdom that she has, decides to induce the promise of God. Perhaps it is so that I have my child through my servant. But I want to remind you that this isn't Sarai's story. This is Hagar's story. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been pulled into something that you just did not want to be a part of? Maybe like Christmas time this past year, and like Uncle Joe from Texas and Aunt Barbara from Portland, you know what I'm talking about? Get into like that political debate, you know? And they just kind of drag you into it. Or it's like you're at the restaurant and the waiter spills like somebody else's spaghetti in your lap. It's like, it's, you didn't ask for it. That's not what you ordered, and, but it's your mess anyways. And this is what happens to Hagar. It's a mess that she never asked to be a part of. She's just collateral damage. And like gravity, Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl, gets pulled into this mess that she never asked for. And so Sarai gives Hagar, because she's property, right, to Abram as a wife. And she becomes pregnant with Abram's first child. Now, if you can imagine this from Sarai's perspective, for a moment, it seems like everything is going according to plan now. God was taking his time. Not sure what exactly he was up to. He has he restricted me. He has imprisoned me. He has not allowed me to have children. It is his fault. And so here's Hagar. And for maybe just a moment, this is exactly what she wants. But it doesn't last, does it? Now, positionally, I want you to think about what happens with Hagar's life uh, as an eclipse. Uh, and so we all know how eclipses were. It's like the moon comes and stands over the sun and kind of blocks it out. You can still kind of see the sun. You can see the brightness from it, but you can't see the sun anymore. The moon is the star of the show. And this is Hagar. Hagar has been in the background her whole life. She is a foreigner 
She is a slave. She doesn't have stuff. She is stuff. She is owned by Abram and Sarai. She is a foreigner, a slave girl. She is someone without a face or even a name. Hagar's life has always been eclipsed by that of Sarai's, the princess, the princess of promise. What has eclipsed you? Right, this, this is the curse. This is the curse of the middle child. Right? Firstborn is like 4.0 GPA, gets into Harvard. Youngest child, they're just trying to prevent that kid from dying. That was me. Second child, though, they're just kind of forgotten about. They're kind of, they're, they go to their room, they do their homework, they're real quiet. But the, the middle child is always kind of like the forgotten one. This is the curse of the wife of a workaholic and the grandma who never gets a phone call. The husband of a wife who has made the kids her first priority and has let the marriage slip into the backdrop. Overlooked, undervalued, underappreciated, uncared for, unloved. This is Hagar. This is her life. She's lived in the shadows as a foreigner and a slave girl, someone without a face or even a name. In fact, if you read through the text, read through this text, look at the way that Abram and Sarai talk about her. Fast forward a few chapters to where Hagar's story continues and look at the way that Abram and Sarai talk about her. Not once do they say her name. She's the servant. She's the Egyptian slave girl, but she must not be named. But now, right, tables are starting to turn in her life. She didn't ask for this mess, but she gets dragged into it, and she becomes pregnant with what everybody is thinking is the covenant child. The child that 10 years before, God had said, Abram, you are going to be the father of many nations, Sarai thinks this is the child, Hagar thinks this is the child, and for the first time in her life, Hagar begins to eclipse Sarai. She's not the princess, I'm the princess. This is my ticket to being somebody, not a something, to finally be seen and valued and cared for. It's like my stock is rising, finally someone sees me. Like she just thinks she thinks she just like won the lottery of life. She's pregnant with the promised child. It's her turn to eclipse. And, and we read in the text that she becomes proud. And she begins to look with contempt upon Sarai. She's the star, right? So maybe she begins to kind of like pout her belly bump around the house. But it doesn't last long, does it? Like all of the hopes, all of the dreams, all of the this is it. It's like she thinks she's got the lottery number, but it was from last year. And she goes to cash it in, but it's, she gets nothing in return. And so if you think about this kind of dynamic in the home, it's like, got the slave girl, all of a sudden she thinks she's better than me. It's, what we read is kind of like a who do you think you are kind of moment. Sarai's wound, her affliction, is that she is childless, that she is barren. 
And, and this, and those, today, it doesn't really matter. You can go adopt a kid. It's not that big of a deal if you can't have kids. Now, it's a big deal to you, and it hurts to you. But there are options for you. In these days, to be barren, to be childless, was to be seen as cursed by God. It was the ultimate shame of a woman. And this affliction that Sarai has is being like, if you can imagine like an open wound just being pressed on by this slave girl, by this nobody, by this girl who we won't even say her name. And now she thinks she's better than me. And so she goes to Abram and she says, I gave her into your embrace. And the literal translation of the Hebrew of Abram's response is, she's under your hand. See the juxtaposition? I gave her into your embrace. And he says, well, she's under your hand. Do with her whatever you please. Mind you, that's, that's Hagar's husband speaking, saying, do whatever you want to her. Just throws her to the wolves. And like a wounded dog, Sarai bears her teeth. And she begins to, the text says, afflict Hagar. Make her suffer. Make her miserable. So I want you to imagine with me what home life must have been like. And uh, hey, Jeffrey, would you be my, you'll be Abram for me. You, you just hold on to that. You can, you can stay seated. You don't need to. Aaron, would you be God? Okay. <laughs> All right. So you can just hold on to there right on that point. Okay. So Abram has some issues with God, right? It's been 10 years He's getting bored, he's waiting, he's waiting for the promised child, and you can see it in his passivity in the passage. Sarai has a terrible idea. I mean, it's not a good idea. Let's have a kid through our slave girl. But Abram just kind of goes along with it. But then who else has an issue with God right now? Sarai's got an issue with God, right? She has an issue with the fact that God hasn't given her a child. And so... uh, Carolyn, would you, would you be Sarai for me? You're going to have problems with a lot of people right now. So here you go. Sorry. All right. So, so there's tension between Abram and God, and there's tension between Sarai and God. And then Hagar, would you be my Hagar? Thank you. <laughs> you guys have issues now. You can just hold on to that for me, okay? You've got issues with her, and she's got issues with you. But then, hold on one second. But Hagar also has an issue probably with Abram now. So there you go. You can hold on to that because that's her husband. And she just got thrown to the wolves, right? This is not a pretty situation. But then there's one more. So Sarai and Abram, they've got tension too. You can just hold on to that one too. You've got problems with everybody. And so do you, do you see the mess that their home is in? There's tension everywhere. There's, there's this tension between every single person in the home. Oh, it's God's fault. Abram, it's your fault. Hagar is looking at me with contempt. This is the mess of their home. You guys can just, I'll clean this up later. This is the, re- have you ever felt like your home is like that? You ever been at like the dinner table? It's like everybody has a problem with somebody there. This is the reality of their home. Just tied up and tense. And why is their home like this? 
Well, because when you put three sinners in a room, what are they going to do? They're going to sin. And they're going to sin against each other. And Hagar finds herself on the run in the wilderness, a desert on the long road back home to Egypt. Once again, a nameless, faceless, friendless girl who's probably scared and alone. Hagar's hopes of being more, more than this nameless, insignificant person have been eclipsed by her suffering. Isn't that what suffering does? It, it eclipses everything that is good. All of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of the potential just gets blotted out like the sun. Suffering eclipses everything that is good. Right? It steals your joy, it robs you of your dreams, it muddies your future. I mean, suffering is isolation. It's darkness, it's pain, it's uncertainty, it is loneliness. It makes your life almost like a living picture of Hagar in this moment, alone and in a, a desert place. Or so she thinks. Now the word... C, in this passage, if you read it, is what's called a motif. And a motif is a, is a word or a phrase or an idea that kind of pushes your passage along, uh, or it kind of maybe threads it all together, if we're going to stay on language with the series. And so the word C pops up 12 different times in different ways throughout this passage. This passage is about sight, right? See, or looked, or saw, or even the name Ishmael which means God sees. And Hagar, who thinks she's alone, encounters what is described as an angel of Yahweh who appears at this desert spring. And some people might argue this is a theophany. I would argue that. That this is an appearance of God manifest approaching a person. There are many times in the Old Testament where God appears to people in the form of an angel or a king, or a messenger. And so I would contend that Yahweh meets her at this spring. And I don't want you to miss the significance of this. Hagar, the nobody, the nameless, the insignificant, the forgotten about, sits at a desert spring, and Yahweh approaches. And what is the first thing he says? Her name. He says, Hagar. How humanizing must that have been for her to have lived in a home for years potentially where nobody says her name, that she is the slave girl, she is the servant, but she's not Hagar. And to have the God of the angel armies approach her and say, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where are you going? Someone sees her. Someone knows her name. And more than that, somebody knows her suffering. 
sees her affliction. And this is how she identifies this angel at the spring in the wilderness. She identifies God as a God of seeing, of sight, who sees her, who sees her misery, who sees her plight. And the nameless, insignificant slave girl is known by a God who sees her and knows her name. In fact, when she says at the end of the passage, I have seen the one who looks after me, she says that she has seen the one who literally sees my back. Or like, he's got my back. He watches over me. She identifies that God has been beside her this whole way. One of my favorite musical albums of the modern day is an album called Mercury and Lightning by John Mark McMillan. And the whole album, uh, start to finish, is about his search for God. He's been a Christian his whole life, but he just feels like God is absent, distant, can't find him. The first line on the album is, I've been chasing God. Chasing him, can't find him, but I'm chasing him. But at the end of the album, which resolves this, this chase after God, he has this beautiful line. He says, have I tried to scale your walls in vain? To cross your seas, I've pushed against your waves. What for all the miles have you to say? Were you there beside me this whole way? And Hagar is finding that to be a reality here in this passage. That she has felt insignificant, that she has felt forgotten about, like everybody is just blind to her. But there's a God who sees her, and he has seen her this whole time. And so we have to talk about two things. And they're what I would call two gifts of grace in suffering is these two things. It is presence and it is sight. Presence and sight. Because what good is a friend who is present but knows nothing of your suffering or a friend who understands but remains distant or absent? In Christ, you have both. Now, his presence, I believe that there may be no greater comfort than to know that God is with you as a friend, alongside you. That God is a, a God of nearness. In fact, when God announces the coming of the Messiah, he says his name is Emmanuel, God with us. There is a proximity that God desires to have and does have with us. How amazing is it to think about that God is all-powerful, all-present, everywhere, all at once, and yet is with you personally, alongside you, hasn't abandoned you, hasn't left you, hasn't seen your mess and taken a couple steps back. The God that we serve is near to you. And in fact, his nearness is more expansive and close than you can imagine. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I run from you? If I go to the highest heights, you are there. If I go to the deepest darkness, you are there. The psalmist in Psalm 46 writes, God is a very present help in time of need. 
And Psalm 23, the most famous psalm of them all. Why do we not fear when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Because you got company. This is the God that we serve. A God who is present and near to you. The presence of Christ is our confidence of his nearness. Not just that he is everywhere, but that he is near to you. To say that God is everywhere, that, I mean, that's just a mind-boggling, can't even wrap my head around that. But to say that God is near to me, I can understand that. That's a God I can work with. In this interaction with Hagar, God reveals something. Not only that he's there at the well, but that he has always been there. That he has always listened to her affliction. That she has never been forgotten. And so let me encourage you this morning, neither are you. Neither are you forgotten. Neither is God blind to your suffering and to your misery. He is with you and he is near to you. But the second thing is sight. A knowledge of, a visibility, a, a non-blindness to the suffering. Now, have you ever been in a room when you lost like a relative? Like you had to go to the bank or the DMV. Nobody knows you. Nobody knows how you're suffering. The people are present with you. In the DMV, people get real close, runs out of seats real fast. So people are close to you. There's, there's nearness, but there's no sight. They don't understand what you're going through. They don't know you. They don't know the depth of your suffering. They don't know that you've been walked out on, that you've been abandoned, that you've just been forgotten about while they take care. your spouse takes care of more important things. They don't think about you. They don't know you. So what good is sight? Or what good is nearness if there is no sight? See, the sight of Christ is our comfort of his empathy. The fact that he sees you and I is our comfort of his empathy, that he feels for us, that he understands, that he doesn't just see that we are suffering, but he understands it in an incredibly intimate way. Because God, Christ, has 20-20 vision, not only of you and what you're experiencing, but he has 20-20 vision into the realities of your suffering. Remember, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. Isn't that what we call him? The suffering servant who is acquainted with grief, understands pain. Isn't that why he is a compassionate high priest? It's because he lived the human experience. He suffered as you and I do. His sight isn't just knowing what you're going through, but knowing intimately the pain that you experience. I mean, Jesus suffered. You want to look at somebody who suffered? You look at Christ. Because he suffered without deserving any of it. You want to know somebody? who was lied to, you can look at Jesus. What about somebody who was abandoned by his closest friends? How about betrayed 
You ever suffered because you were betrayed? Jesus gets it. He's not blind to it. You cannot say that God does not know what you are going through. You ever, you ever, when you're in a dark place, right, and you're suffering, and it feels like nobody gets it, lost a, a child or a spouse or a, a brother, mom, dad, right? Got a divorce that you never asked for. Had somebody be unfaithful to you. And in your suffering, it feels like nobody gets it. In fact, some of the worst words that somebody can say to you is, I totally understand what you're going through, when they don't. But Jesus sees. He knows loneliness. He knows abandonment. He knows pain. He knows betrayal. He knows poverty. He knows heartbreak. It was Spurgeon who said, a Jesus who never wept is a Jesus who could never wipe away my tears. So not only is Jesus Christ a present Savior, but he is a Savior who sees your pain and is not running away. But he draws near to you, closer. There, there is no amount of suffering that you can experience that will drive away the heart of Christ from you. Nothing. And I want you to understand this this morning. That this is the friend that you have in Christ. A friend that Hagar found in the wilderness. And I would say that his presence there is like a living picture of the spring that she was at in the middle of the desert. Her whole life barren, Dreams and hopes dashed to pieces, and yet here is a spring of living water. In the barrenness of your suffering, there is a spring of living water for you to drink from. The friendship of Christ. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother that does not leave you or abandon you, and in fact, doesn't even know how. A friend that knows with a deep and intimate knowledge of what you suffer and how dark and lonely and isolating it can be. He is the God who humbles the mighty and exalts the humble, the downtrodden, and the marginalized. He is the God who sees the forgotten and who does not abandon you for the sake of his own glory. This is my God who is with you on the dark night of the soul, when you have nobody else beside you, when you find yourself in a desert like Hagar, lost and alone and nameless, and he will say your name, and you will know that he is with you. This is our God, and this is the friendship that he offers to us. In your dark night of the soul, in your loneliness, in your forgottenness, in your namelessness, God sees you, and he is with you. And the friendship of Christ can eclipse your suffering. That's our big idea. The friendship of Christ can eclipse your suffering. He doesn't minimize it, doesn't make light of it, doesn't say get over it, 
doesn't say get through it. But rather, it's as if Jesus sees you in your suffering and stands in front of it so that you can see him instead. To know that he is patient and kind. That he will lift you up from the ashes. But in the meantime, he is there and he is with you. He sees you and he will walk with you in the dark night. Tim Keller once said that suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. So know this morning that in Christ you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you and I praise you for the story of Hagar. I pray that as we wrestle with this in our own homes and our own hearts, Lord, that you would break into the context of our souls and remind us of the friendship that you have offered us, that you are the best friend that we could ever ask for or think to ask for, that you are a friend that when everybody else falls away or betrays or abandons, that you remain steadfast and sure. You are our suffering Savior and our kindest friend who in the worst days of our life will not abandon us or leave us. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us and I ask that you would encourage our souls this morning by your word. It's in Jesus' most precious and beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jesse. What a wonderful, encouraging truth that we see in the Word. Isn't it amazing that the friendship of Christ really can eclipse our suffering? As uh, we come to this point into the, the seer, sermon and the, the worship service, obviously we want to respond to what God has done. It's one thing to know these truths. It's an entirely other thing to respond to them by how we live. And that's going to be what our next steps are all about. If you have your connection card, let me ask you to pull that out. And uh, we have a couple of things that we're going to encourage you to do to follow after Christ in this. Um, and so the first thing, of course, is to, to be here. Uh, as you, and you guys are doing really great, but for the next four weeks uh, to, to be here, maybe for Lent, you give up excuses not to be at church. That's a great thing to give up. Uh, but to say, you know, I'm going to be here because uh, we need to remember these common threads that we have in Scripture and in the families that we have, but to make that first commitment. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we're going to say maybe you'd like to spend some time this week and to memorize our anchor verse, uh, Ephesians uh, 3, 20 and 21. Uh, that constant reminder, putting it onto your heart and to your soul, that no matter where you are in life, how difficult things are, no matter what the sufferings are, that God is at work and he could do far more than you would even know to ask him to do. And remind yourself of that truth, because that's true regardless if you know it or not, that God is at work. So remind yourself of this and be encouraged. Uh, maybe something else you might want to do is, and this is to uh, remind your soul of Jesus's friendship, that he's there. And if you are a follower of his, he's with you. And so it's just that reminder every single day to be able to go back and, and to have that relationship, to say uh, the truth that God is with me. And if he's with us, then really what I'm going through is not forever. 
And there is hope because I have a friend in the midst of this. Oh, it might be in your, your prayer time. It might be in your, your Bible study. Maybe it's uh, in, in your time of worship. But it's that choice to, to embrace this truth, uh, which can really carry us through difficult times. Or maybe you want to do, here's that next step outside of that, is not just to receive these truths, but also to adopt that, that Christ-likeness, to be able to, that fourth one is to see the afflicted like God does. This story of Hagar, no one saw her in her suffering, but God did. And now being his followers, we have the privilege to be able to, to gain those type of eyes, to look into the world and those around us and not just just be superficial, but to look for the downtrodden, the outcast, to be able to see those that are suffering and be able to care for them. And maybe that's what you, your commitment is this week, to be very intentional. Pray about it. Say, God, show me those that are hurting that could use a word of encouragement. Show me those that are in our life that are hurt. That, and, and take that next step to, to give them a call, give them a hug, to send them a note of encouragement, to remind them that they are not alone. Uh, be uh, working alongside the Spirit of God in this, because truthfully, His friendship eclipses our suffering and be part of it. Maybe that's your commitment. Of course, maybe there's something else that the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart to do. We encourage you to write that down. There's a space there for that. Let us know what it is. Of course, if you're here this morning, maybe you're online and you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to know that His friendship, God knows you and He knows your name, but He's calling you and you need to be saved by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you need to make that commitment, be born again, be part of his family, to receive that kind of love so that you can have that fellowship, let me encourage you, after the message, come forward. You can talk with me or Pastor Jesse or Pastor Colin. We would love to be able to help you take those next steps of faith. And, of course, make sure that you write your prayer requests because we do pray for you every week. It's a way that we get to serve you because God sees you, he hears you, he knows you, and he's not going to abandon you. All right, so uh, in a second, we're going to take these these connection cards, so please have them ready along with your tithes and gifts. Now, let me pray for you as you make your commitments to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you never abandon us, that we are imperfect and we do imperfect things, but you are always perfect and you always do what is right. And you see us and when we feel insignificant, we recognize that it's not us that our significance comes from, it comes from you. And to know that you are perfect, and even in the midst of that, then you're perfect in, in keeping your word, never to leave nor forsake. And for those who are here today that could use that word of encouragement, I ask that you would speak that truth into their hearts, even now. And Father, for those of us who feel very close to you, are going through times of, of blessing and times of joy, Father, may this truth also percolate into our hearts in a deep way to remind us that the friendship we have with you is not anything to take for granted. But give us the opportunity then to see those who suffer, to remind them that you are also with, their, with them as well. Father, take our commitments, use them for your glory, use them to build our church in, in faithfulness as we can be your disciples that build those generational, transformational disciples. We fill and saturate this valley with your gospel. Father, take our, our tithes and our offerings as well. Use them as well to pr uh, promote your kingdom, to be able to care for your church, and as well as to show your loving kindness to those in this community. We pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior.